Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. What have dogs ever done for us? The dog could tell whether or not the soldier was long for this world. They can uh, determine smell on a nuance that we can't even conceive. For them, this is a big game. And at the end of the game, when they find the victim, uh, they get to tug on that toy and they get to interact with that person. And so that is their reward. That's what they're doing this for. It's a big game of hide and seek. And what have we done to our dogs? It's because I love dogs so much that I want to be critical of how we are weaponizing them against a certain community. I think one of the strange things about human beings is our capacity for ambivalence. We can simultaneously love a dog like Laika and then send her to her death. I'm Kyone Wolf. What can we learn about ourselves by how we train our dogs? That's next on Audacious, right after the news. Imagine there's been an earthquake. It happened so fast. The last thing you remember is running to get under the kitchen table, and then everything got really loud and went black. You come to, and you're stuck under the rubble of your home. No matter how hard you try, you can't move. You can't see anything. Your eyes are burning. Your mouth tastes like blood and dirt. Your leg is throbbing. The right side of your rib cage, too. The pressure on your chest and the pain makes it so you can barely breathe, let alone scream for help. Finally, you hear the most beautiful sound in the world. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today on the show, the ways in which we train our dogs and what that says about us. You'll hear about how dogs are trained in search and rescue, dating back to some of our earliest wars, how they've been trained by authority figures for hundreds of years to bite and hold and sometimes kill, and how the street dogs of Moscow were trained to fly into space, even though it meant their certain doom. First, let's go back in history and hear about the amazing Mercy Dogs of World War I. Blake Stilwell is a former Air Force combat camera operator and currently the veteran jobs editor at Military.com. He wrote an article about the history of Mercy Dogs, and he told me about how they were used. Dogs have been used in warfare for a number of reasons for thousands of years, but the Mercy Dogs or um, casualty dogs, comfort dogs, they had a lot of names dates back to World War One, and they're pretty much the um, antiquated equivalent of our search and rescue dogs. You know, they were used by Allied forces in on the Entente side uh, of World War One extensively. They, they searched for wounded soldiers. They could uh, smell the difference between a soldier who was alive or who was dead. They were able to, you know, leave the trench and go out searching. 
you know, uh, these days we have, it's not very often that a U.S. soldier is uh, left alone or stranded on a battlefield, injured and dying. I mean, I'm not going to say that it never happens, but back then we're talking about the thousands. So losing track of somebody um, was sadly common. So when a dog would head out into the field or woods or wherever and find a soldier dead or dying, how would it alert the people in charge that they'd found someone? Um, they would bring back part of the uniform or uh, they would return with uh, their leash in their mouth to let people know that, hey, I found somebody out there. He's still alive and you know he's probably going to be if you get out there pretty fast. What was most interesting to me is that the dog could tell whether or not the soldier was long for this world. There were surgeons who remarked upon how <laughs> excellent dogs were at triage, um, you know, who could be saved or who would die. And if the, the soldier was about to die, uh, the dog would stay with him and comfort him as he died. And some breeds would even defend the dying soldier against approaching enemies because they're just loyal friends. What kind of breeds are we talking about? I'm not picturing chihuahuas. <laughs> I own a chihuahua, so uh, <laughs> I want to say he's very, very loyal. Noted. In World War One, German Shepherds and um, Pointers and uh, especially Boxers were all useful as comfort dogs and casualty dogs. What do you think it is about those breeds that made them so perfect for this job? I know from cursory research that certain breeds are better for certain things. There are certain dogs that are much better at, uh, you know, hunting rats, for example, or for searching for body parts or uh, helping disabled people live normal lives. So I think it was probably a combination back then of these are the dogs we have versus these are the dogs that are most, you know, skilled at actually finding uh, these troops. And no, I don't think of a Chihuahua as, you know, ferocious or good at sniffing, but my dog is very loyal. And um, I think that he would definitely hang out with me. But to go out and find other <laughs> other people wounded on the battlefield, I don't, I don't see it. So <laughs> nature or nurture, I think it's probably a little bit of both. But service dogs today and service dogs back then, you know, they went through extensive training to be able to do that. And I imagine that they were just breeds who took to it better than others. You were saying how they are trained to be able to tell whether a person is dead or alive or mostly dead. <laughs> I wonder about the nuance behind that, because there is there is dead and there's alive and there's suffering and there's almost dead, right? How do you think they knew to come back to signal this person is worth saving versus... Yeah, by the time I get to, he's probably dead. Like, do you know how that was trained or how that works? Part of it is in biology. I think that there's uh, humans have six million uh, receptors for smell, but dogs have something like three hundred million. So they can uh, determine smell on a nuance that we can't even conceive. So uh, maybe it's just how they smell. Uh, surgeons in World War One would remark about how dogs were able to uh, determine better than men, uh, you know, the gut feeling uh, about who was worth saving and who wasn't. One surgeon even used the word triage. They were, <laughs> they were, uh, you know, able to lead them to bodies. And even if the surgeon thought they were dead, the dog knew better, and they were able to save that man. 
Now, obviously, this skill of finding dead or wounded soldiers and then letting folks know about it is a, is a really powerful tool. But talk about how these mercy dogs, casualty dogs, comfort dogs, whatever we call them, talk about their relationship with the soldiers. What were they like when they weren't doing the dirty work? I think, uh, you know, experience today after I've deployed to Iraq twice and, uh, and you know, I have stories and uh, friends who have deployed as well. You know, you find a dog and you feed a dog or you spend time with a dog, the dog just hangs out with you. And as a matter of fact, there are many, many stories about American troops adopting dogs and taking them back to uh, the trenches. And, you know, that's how they discovered that terriers were really good at um, finding rats is that American troops just brought a terrier back to the front line and the terrier kept the rat away. So uh, there's a lot of to it that is just, you know, humans and dog bonding. Uh, but, you know, the U.S. didn't really have a war dog school in when it entered the war in 1917, and uh, it never adopted one. The U.S. troops relied on the Red Cross's dogs or the Allied dogs, especially the British, to serve as casualty dogs and, and comfort dogs. Uh, so the British actually had a school for dogs, and along the Western Front, I believe that there were 10,000 comfort dogs uh, in the war used by both sides. And the Germans uh, on their side, they actually started um, using comfort dogs in I think the late 1800s. So I know that dogs like many animals can get PTSD. And so I wonder what we know about what that did to the animal. It is a proven fact that, uh, you know, dogs do suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder like humans do. But uh, I think that you said it best when, we, when you said we don't deserve them. They're there. They're there whether or not the times are bad or the times are good. I mean, there was one dog who was uh, shelled and gassed and, um, you know, shot at it for months on end. Pictures abound. You can go to Google and look up and see the specially made gas masks just for dogs. It happens so often that they made gas masks for dogs. So they were there. They were there with us. Um, <laughs> no matter what. When you were learning about these dogs, what surprised you the most? Like what's really stuck in your mind about how we've used these dogs and what that says about us? What's really fascinating to me is it's a combination of forces that really comes together in this one animal that makes them so uh, adept to uh, serving in this role. You know, the, the loyalty uh, the comfort they bring, the biology of it, the training. They can find people under 15 feet of snow. They can find them underwater, under rubble, under mudslides. There's a photo of a rescue dog at the 9-11 site uh, that is just like heart-wrenching. But like they were so dedicated to finding people. And they can be trained to do that. They'll do it naturally. It's just astonishing. We don't deserve dogs. We really don't. That was Blake Stilwell from Military.com. This brings us to modern-day search and rescue dogs. Denise Sanders is the Senior Director of Communications and Handler Relations for the Search Dog Foundation in Santa Paula, California. I asked her where these life-changing dogs get their start. The majority of our dogs come from shelters. Some of them, you know, will receive as what we call owner surrenders, which is typically 
before they go to the shelter. These dogs in particular are very toy driven. And when we say that, we don't just mean that they play fetch in the backyard for a few times. It's near obsessive where they just have to possess that toy. And the reason why that is so important, actually more so I would say than some of the other qualities that we do still look for, like high energy and focus and, you know, things like that. But the reason the toy drive is so incredibly important is that's what they're working for. For them, this is a big game. And at the end of the game, when they find the quote unquote victim, uh, they get to tug on that toy and they get to interact with that person. And so that is their reward. That's what they're doing this for. It's a big game of hide and seek. So where does the training start? Like what's the first thing the dog learns in search and rescue? Initially, they learn to bark. And that's the, the bark alert, which when you're on a rubble pile at a real disaster and you hear a bark alert, that means they've found a survivor and that someone has been found alive and can be pulled. Um, and so that's why that is so incredibly important. It's the first thing they learn. And through a little bit of teasing, but it's all done in fun, we get them to bark. And once they realize that I have to say, I've watched this, I don't even know how many times through the years, you see the light bulb go off and you see the dog connect the two and realize okay, so if I bark, they want me to, first of all, then when I bark, I get the toy. And then not only that, I'm getting to tug on this toy with this human being and interact with them. And on top of all of that, they're calling me a good dog while I do it. And you really, and I'm not exaggerating, you just see that light bulb moment and you see this new dog emerge that knows what he or she is doing, is happy to be doing it, and is thrilled because at the end of the day, this is their most favorite game ever. This is what they were meant to do. And now they get to do it. <laughs> it's amazing. When you think about the fact that they're often, you know, they're, they're doing this work that is so heavy with meaning for us, of course, right? And so here this dog is so excited because it gets to tug on the thing and bark and it gets to play. And it really, truly is doing great work. And at the same time, often that work is so sad. Do you know if dogs get the nuance of what they're doing when especially they've found a dead body or the news isn't that great what i know that's kind of a strange question to ask but what do you gather no, dogs not at get? all not in disaster response it's not i i have to say because unfortunately the reality reality of it is that this is part of what whether they're firefighters other first responders or dogs do deal with when they're at the scene of a disaster and i i don't think that dogs really humanize the game at all or quite understand the magnitude what they will understand is they're human they're handler, what we call their emotions kind of bleeding down the leash is what we, we say oftentimes is kind of carrying down the leash and feeding into it. But I don't know that dogs really understand what that is. All they know is that their human is acting strangely and probably is giving off some, some strange energy and, you know, probably the sweat, the heart rate, the breathing, all of that dogs picked up on. Um, but other than that, I don't think they understand the magnitude of it and even the seriousness of it. What they know is they're there to do a job because at the end of the day, they're going to get the reward for that and for a job well done. And that's what matters to them. And so we often get asked, you know, do dogs kind of get depressed? Do they get down at a site, if, you know, especially if they're not finding anyone? Um, because oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes there are no survivors, which is a good a good thing, you know, or hopefully that means no one's missing. We'd prefer that, yeah. 
part of that also is to then set up mock searches after their shift is done at a disaster site, ask, you know, one of their teammates to go and hide for the dog and set up kind of a, a fake search, but it's a training search. And so they get that reward at the end of the day and they end on a good note. And that's, you know, in dog training, that's the most important thing I would say is making sure you end on a good note and they get to go back at night and go rest knowing that they did a good job because they don't know the difference. They still found their victim and they got to tug on their toy. So it was a great day. What are some dog breeds? And I know you're not necessarily, I know you're not picking from breeders here, No, <laughs> but what, what are some, what are the, some of the breeds that you can kind of count on to be more likely to be successful search and rescue dogs? The top breeds that we see and mixes thereof. So yes, most of our dogs are shelter dogs. So we don't always know what's in there, but uh, the typical breeds we see are Labrador retrievers, golden retrievers, border collies, German shepherds, Belgian Malinois, uh, Australian Shepherds a bit. And so it's really the herding and hunting breeds that kind of have that innate drive for the hunt um, and to, to do the job. They're the working breeds. So they tend to have the behaviors we look for. But really, at the end of the day, we're looking for the behavioral traits. You know, we're not so interested in the breed. It's can they do the job? Will they do the job? And do they have the endurance with those traits to do the job and do it well? Then on top of that, we're asking them to get up on a rubble pile. And a lot of folks, when I say rubble, think about, you know, a gravel pile at Lowe's or Home Depot. And that's not quite what we mean. We're, we're talking about entire concrete slabs and 10, 20, 30, 40,000 square feet of concrete that can be upwards of 10 to 20 feet high in places. And, you know, it's a lot, but these dogs absolutely love it to them. It's like a jungle gym. It's a playground. And once you've seen one that is capable of it and has that toy drive, you know what the it factor is with them. And there's no mistaking it. You, you see that spark and you see that drive and you know that that's a search dog. And then you get to watch them go through the whole process and eventually be partnered with a firefighter handler and go home and live their life as yes, a working dog, but as part of the family. So what happens to the dogs who are awesome, but not quite right for this job? we have what's called our lifetime care program because not every dog is made to be a search dog. Uh, some of them may enjoy the game at the beginning and then realize mm, this is a little more work than I really, really want to do. It's fun. Don't get me wrong, but I don't really want to do this. Um, and that's totally fine. We do not force the dogs to do this by any means. They have to want it. Um, but our lifetime care program, we find either a new career for them or a loving home if, if that's more suitable. So they have a home with us no matter what. No dog uh, once rescued, they never have to be rescued again. Well, Denise Sanders, Senior Director of Communications and Handler Relations for the Search Dog Foundation in Santa Paula, California. Thank you so much for all you do. And thank you for talking with me. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. When we get back, the troublesome tale of Laika, the street dog from Moscow, who became the first animal to orbit the planet. Plus, the rate at which officers use force by canine against black people was more than double that for white people. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about how the ways that we train our dogs tells us a lot about ourselves. From the times of slavery to modern-day police forces, it's been a practice of authority figures to use dogs to hunt, threaten, injure, and kill black people. 
Even some of the police officers who are partnered with these dogs sustain injuries. According to a 2016 workers' comp report from California, 190 law enforcement officers reported on-the-job injuries involving police dogs. Chantel Stewart is an attorney based out of Montgomery, Alabama, who's studied and written about the topic. She told me about how slave owners would use enslaved people to train the very dogs who would later be used to track them or their loved ones down. A slave owner would have an enslaved person tie up a dog and beat the dog immersively. And that would make the dog extremely angry, of course. And what the slave owner would then do is have the um, enslaved person uh, release the dog. And when the dog was, of course, released, he would um, move on with an attack to the enslaved person. And this built a relationship um, between enslaved people and dogs that was one of sheer fear. And we can see remnants of that history in different scenarios when there is someone who is put in a position of fear from uh, a dog being attacked against them. What happened when peaceful student protesters marched in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963? These protesters were, of course, um, showing resistance towards injustice that was happening in their community. And officers chose to use dogs as a tool um, and weaponize dogs against these peaceful protesters. And some of these protesters ended up with dog bites Um, It also discouraged protesters um, from coming out in the future. This is something that we still see today. um, And it's hurtful that we are still seeing these same exact scenes. Will you talk about the findings of an investigation by the Center for Policing Equity in 2015? Yes. So the Center for Policing Equity published a hybrid report combining uh, the analysis from multiple police departments across the country The 2015 study found that the rate at which officers use force by canine against Black people was more than double that for white people. There is a presumption of guilt against African-Americans in this country. And we as Americans utilize uh, that impulse and that bias that we have against African-Americans through the weaponization of dogs. And this is happening in many police departments across the country. It's something that I am so interested in because I love dogs so much and because I know how much dogs are are useful in our society as our companions and our friends. And it's because I love dogs so much that I want to be critical of how we are weaponizing them against a certain community. And there's no real standard way that police departments are training dogs, yeah, nationally? No, actually, the training is, it varies. Uh, And that's the scary part, because courts have held that as long as um, an officer is going based off the training of the police department, and then that's oftentimes ruled as reasonable use of force. But we see in these cases that the use of force that the officers are brandishing against suspects is a use of force that would not be okay if it was at the hands of the officer versus the bite or the growl of a dog. 
that's what happened in Robinette v. Barnes, right? The the burglary suspect, Daniel Briggs, was killed by a police dog. Talk about that case. So in that case, we see a complex situation where the training that the officer um, was employing with the dog, which is often called the bite and hold, where a dog will go and bite the nearest part of the suspect. Uh, in this particular case, the nearest part um, that was closest to the dog was the person's neck. Um, and so as the dog went to grip the closest part as it does in its training, um, he was chewing on the suspect's neck and no suspect deserves to be mauled without the opportunity to surrender. Are we okay with this type of uh, force, even if this is training? And we know that it's not uniform training. So with this type of force being used against um, suspects, we can't trust the very training across the nation. Which makes me think about the Rin Tin Tin effect. I mean, it, it, in this case, if, as you say in your article, if an officer banged on his throat till he died, it would there'd be public outrage. But when a police dog does it, there's no repercussions or changes in training standards. Will you talk a little bit more about that Rin Tin Tin effect? Donald Cook, a Los Angeles attorney, coined the Rin Tin Tin effect. This basically shows how we have loyalty to the dogs as they show loyalty to us. And so in these cases, people are met um, with a with a hard bargain. Do they turn against this loyalty by recognizing and acknowledging the fact that there are dogs out there who have been trained by people who have these biases? who have these this presumption of guilt against African-Americans. You mentioned that you love dogs. How is this for you when you are out and about and you see a dog that looks like a police dog? When I am met with a dog that looks like a police dog, I'm often put to fear. And this is something that I see um, in a lot of different clients and a lot of different people who are in prison they fear dogs and they now have a huge fear of dogs because of uh, prison dogs and how those dogs have been terrorizing them. Um, There are people who've had encounters with police who are now terrorized by dogs. And because I love dogs, this this saddens me. Uh, It really does because I know the companionship and the love that a dog can bring in a person's life. And to know that this person now cannot experience that because someone weaponize a dog against them is hurtful. How does it feel for you to see these images and these videos repeat and repeat and repeat? It gives me fear that even long after I'm gone, this will still be happening. When people start to recognize that um, some dogs are used as weapons and some dogs are Um, being used to terrorize others, when we open our mind to that, then we can start to unpack other racial issues and injustices that are happening in our country. If we attack this issue head on um, by first acknowledging um, this weird feeling, um, we can move closer to some form of justice.
beyond acknowledging it, what do you think really would help? I think that we need to start with some form of uniform training um, for police dogs. Then I think we should move on to getting rid of the idea that we need to use dogs as weapons at all. And then I think we need to recognize um, how communities um, are using their dogs against their neighbors and using their dogs to form a community um, that is closer to their idea of what their community should look like. So if we're if we recognize that um, there are areas to make the corrections, um, we can easily uh, make these changes. I think, too, about training and that there are real human beings in charge of deploying these dogs, you know, making the the choice about whether or not to use them. And I think about the attack on the Capitol in Washington, where, frankly, I couldn't find any evidence of police dogs being used on the hundreds of mostly white people storming the center of our democracy as the electoral votes were being counted. No police dogs. So how was that for you to watch? Knowing all you know, what did you see and feel that day? It was revealing. It was revealing. They are not experiencing anything um, that an African-American would experience in that case. You know, I don't think that even an African-American crowd would have been able to get through the gates and wouldn't have been able to get that close. Do you see it now? Do you understand what I've been talking about now? And still some people don't. <laughs> and if you could see it, which to me, it's not hard to see, but then look at all the other evidence. Don't you see it now? And don't you see it back then? Right, right. And do you see how if we don't address it, it will continue to happen. Is there anything that I missed? Any gaping holes or any subtleties that you want to make sure you say before we finish up? When we are thinking of a world in which we don't need to weaponize dogs, we need to start with ourselves. Um, we need to check our own biases. We need to check our own communities. Uh, we have to start with ourselves. Attorney Chantel Stewart, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. I really appreciated the combo. After the break. She probably survived just a matter of hours um, and likely was dead by the time the satellite made its third revolution. The story of Laika, the Soviet space dog who became the first animal to orbit the Earth. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is what you'll be. Stray dog in space, giving me a name. You are right. I don't have a place here. I don't have a place. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. This hour, from search and rescue to police canine units to dogs in space, how the ways that we train our dogs tells us a lot about ourselves. It's November 3rd, 1957, at 5.30 a.m. The Soviet Union, in the middle of the space race with the United States, is launching the satellite Sputnik 2. Inside that satellite, 
is a 13-pound, two-year-old female dog snatched from the streets of Moscow. This dog had many names in the media. Lemonchik, or Little Lemon, Domka, Little Lady. The American media called her Mutnik, which I appreciate as a lover of wordplay. But her official name was Laika, or Barker. She would become the first animal to orbit the Earth and the first animal to die there. She would not survive the journey, and the Soviets knew it. Kurt Caswell is a professor in the Honors College at Texas Tech University, and he's the author of Laika's Window, The Legacy of a Soviet Space Dog. He told me that the whole idea of sending a dog to orbit our planet was to see what would happen to him, so that later plans could be made for a mission that included human beings. I asked him why the Soviets chose to use, of all things, dogs. They had a history, in fact, of working with dogs, as in Pavlov with uh, dog training, that famous story in, in psychology. But um, the Russians felt like the dogs were much hardier. They could stand the training and they could stand the flights. So dogs were hardier. They were easy to come by. They were easy to train and they were easy to feed and take care of in, in a, a kind of kennel setting. And so they went to the streets of Moscow. What were they looking in the stray dog? They, then they, gra- they grabbed a bunch of them, right? Right. So uh, they were mostly looking for stray dogs because they felt that those dogs had already been tested by the kind of harsh winters of, of the Moscow winter. And they were looking for a particular size of dog and a color that would show up on a black and white film as it was being shot while the the animals, the dogs were in flight. Primarily, they wanted female dogs because with the flights that were longer, especially after Laika flew, they had to use uh, a kind of toilet training system um, so that the dogs would eliminate into this kind of back bag and system. And it was much easier to fashion that system on a female dog than a male dog. What do you know about general public opinion in Russia and around the world in terms of the idea of shooting a street dog into space? In the United States, there was quite a bit of outcry and also in the West, in the UK, that the Russians or the Soviets had um, were, were very cruel and they were launching, you know, our best friend into space and killing them. Um, you know, the, the, the response was fairly negative, but then on the inside, the people who are working with Laika, you know, there, there's documented evidence of um, the scientists breaking down in tears when they launched her. They didn't know how how long she would survive, but they knew that she wasn't coming back. Which is not what they told the world. Correct. She was the only dog that went into space with a without a return plan. All the other dogs had a recovery plan. So they told the world the mission was for seven days, and they announced to the world that, you know, she had made it seven days in space. And they received a great deal of data from that experiment, and she died a painless death. And then, you know, the satellite burned up as it re-entered. Again, something that was not true. What was Laika's condition at the time of the launch? Laika was probably very close to death before they launched, because they loaded her into the capsule, sealed it, Um, She had limited this kind of food water mixture 
and then loaded on top of the rocket. And she stayed in the capsule for three days on the ground before they even launched because of you know solving technical problems and such. So by the time they launched, she had eaten all the food that had a bit of moisture in it. But if you just do the math, you know that the amount of water in that food was not sufficient to sustain a dog of her size for three days. Um, so by the time they launched, she was probably very close to death due to simply dehydration. And then when she went into, when she orbited, she was alive when she reached orbit. There were signals coming back from her pulse and respiration, but uh, she probably survived just a matter of hours um, and likely was dead by the time the satellite made its third revolution. The name of your book is Leica's Window, and some may wonder why would they put a window on a satellite containing a dog? Talk about what you know about Leica's window and why it was part of the design. The practical reason is that those capsules were, they were also used to train the dogs to tolerate uh, confined spaces. So they placed the dogs, you know, with their uh, facing out, looking out this window. So they had a little bit of natural light coming in. And while the dogs were on the ground and they were training them in those confined capsules, they could monitor them visually. But fascinatingly, I think, uh, you know, the capsule goes into space and then there's the window which exposes uh, Leica and other, other dogs to space. So this was a question, of course, and a, and a kind of quest of mine to find out, could Leica see out of the window or was the fairing that protects the caps or the satellite as it's going into orbit, was that still intact? Uh, and so she would have been in darkness. And this was a question that really took me almost four years to answer. But as I asked the question, uh, to various people, I got these curious answers. And the, the four basic answers I would receive are, no, she could not see out. Yes, she could see out. I don't know. No one's ever asked the question before. And the fourth answer was, who cares? Why does it matter? But that last piece is what I felt was really what did matter most. You know, Leica is very likely the first living thing to see the Earth from orbit. How long was she up there for before it came crashing down? About five months. Mm. So this dog in a capsule was looking over us all for about five months. Correct. So her body is, you know, circling the Earth over and over and over again for about five months before it, it came down. And in, in your book, you write really beautifully about her homecoming. Will you read that section for me? I would be happy to. Pieces of the satellite broke off and burned alongside the main body before dimming and dropping away. Observers on one of the ships at sea, the regent Springbok, reported that the satellite looked like the tail of a peacock each particle glowing through the spectrum from white to a deep blue in magnificent display. When the satellite reached about 11 degrees north latitude, east of Trinidad and Tobago, 
and had fallen to about 35 miles altitude, it exploded in a fiery burst like great fireworks lighting up the dark. In the moments after that burst, an eerie pale light was reported, illuminating the decks of ships at sea and the sea around them. What was left of Sputnik II and the first space voyager, Laika, traveled on, falling and burning in its arc across the Atlantic and over Suriname and French Guiana, then onto the eastern shoulder of Brazil. As the satellite burned, the dog burned with it. The dry calcium phosphates of Laika's bones, the salts and minerals and the carbons of her body, the very building blocks of life, dissipated in the upper atmosphere to drift on stratospheric winds. Eventually, some of the matter that had once been Laika, now vaporized and elemental, rained down onto the earth where her life began and somewhere out there headed toward the place where one of the great rivers of the world, the Amazon, meets the sea, Sputnik II vanished completely, still traveling fast above the horizon line. It burned out and was reconsumed by the great black nothing of the cosmic dark. The entire event unfolded in about 10 minutes. There is something mythological about Laika and the choices, the thousands of choices that went into getting that dog in space. And I think after reading your book, this whole process brings up more questions about humanity than answers and, and more contradictions about what and whom we value. So when you think about her story, do you think it was worth it? That's a really hard question to answer. Um, yes, I think it was worth it. I think one of the strange things about human beings is our capacity for ambivalence, you know, that we can simultaneously uh, love a dog like Laika and then send her to her death, you know, for something that we think we need or that's essential. As you're saying, the contradiction there or the, our capacity for ambivalence is it's in some ways leads us to these amazing places. Like we now have people living and working in space, you know, for a year at a time. And I find it really interesting that the dogs went first, um, but now it's us, you know, going. And I had this imagining of what would be that first Mars mission like. It won't be dogs going up to see how it is up there for us. It'll be us going up to see how it is for the dogs. You know, so if there is a continuous uh, outpost on Mars or the moon, I would imagine that we would need other animals with us to survive even psychologically in a, you know, an outpost on another world. And it seems dogs would be the ones to go with us. And, you know, we are accustomed to sending dogs out in our place. As, you know, as we talk about in this episode, we send dogs out to find wounded soldiers. Police, of course, sometimes send them out to apprehend and injure and sometimes kill civilians that are suspected of crime. So in a way, this expulsion of this dog off this planet is so typically human. 
Yeah, and with hunting as well, that dogs evolved, you know, with us in a hunting environment, and we sent those dogs out to either track down or bring back, you know, a killed animal or to round them up. Herding dogs do the same thing. They have long been an extension of our reach. And in some ways, it makes a lot of sense that they also are an extension of our reach off the planet. I think about the place that dogs hold in terms of uh, being antidotes to our loneliness. And your book talks about loneliness, um, that we've evolved with this animal and we've become less lonely, among other things. And still, we're on this quest for an antidote for our planetary loneliness. And so we send a dog, this ultimate companion, right, that we've been domesticating for 100,000 years. We've sent them to the loneliest place imaginable. The fact that we're seeking at the same time immortality to get off this rock and onto the next thing, but attempting it involving the deaths of the animals that we've used in becoming less lonely. <laughs> what do you make of all these contradictions? What, how does that stick in your head? What, what sense do you make of it? I don't know that we'll ever quite be satisfied you know, that our search and that longing is always there as a kind of uh, vacuum we're trying to fill. And that that research and exploration and launching dogs into space to find out what's up there and then going ourselves and then going to the moon and then going to Mars. And then there's always another horizon to, to chase after. And as fast as we chase it, you know, the farther that horizon recedes into the distance and we never quite reach it. It's a bit like, um, if you know, and through the looking glass, the red queen who's running in place and she says something to Alice like, you know, in this world, you have to run as fast as you can to stay in the same place. And it seems that we are the kind of creature that does that very thing every day. We're running as fast as we can and we're kind of staying in the same place, meaning we're always hungry for something more. Another feeling that sticks with me about Laika's story and conversations that inevitably Laika's story turns to is animal testing. We obviously couldn't get consent from Laika. And that also reminds me of a show we did about antinatalism, the philosophy that it's morally wrong to have children and that we should stop. And part of that theory is you can't get consent from this baby to exist. And that's, that is something, and that's difficult to wrap your head around. And I know it's, it's hard to compare. Has this made you think differently about animal testing on the whole? With Laika and consent, I think with dogs, this is, this is why in, in Laika's window, I tried to make the case that Laika was not a lab animal, but a working dog, you know, like a war dog, like a search and rescue dog, like a, a service dog. Obviously she could not give consent or speak to us, but dogs do give some consent in working when they're willing to work. And the dogs that are unwilling to work, and this was true of the, the Soviets who were training those dogs, they cycled them out of the training program. There were dogs that did just did not tolerate the training, um, and therefore they were retired. So that's, you know, it's hard to see Laika as a research animal or a lab animal so much as a companion working dog. 
I'd mentioned that Laika is sort of a mythical creature in her story. She wasn't safe on the streets and she wasn't safe off this planet. She was a victim. She was a hero. She was vulnerable and she was brave. She went from fundamentally unknown to legendary. And frankly, she's reaching her peak as we talk about her on this public radio show. Talk about how you see the lasting legacy or how you'd like to see the lasting legacy of Laika. I would love for Laika's story to be honored. To me, she's um, she's Seabiscuit. You know, she's Rin Tin Tin. She's, uh, she's more heroic than tragic. In fact, anything that is, you know, any, any story that is heroic has a tragic element, of course. And that hero usually dies at at their task or at their um, their moment of heroism. So I prefer to see like as, you know, a, a hero and helper to us as opposed to a victim of our cruelty. Well, it is a beautifully written book and I really loved reading it and I am so grateful. So thank you so much, Kurt Caswell, author of Laika's Window, The Legacy of a Soviet Space Dog. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you so much. You can see photos of Laika at ctpublic.org slash audacious. And you can also see a photo of my Russian street dog, Gray. He has not yet been to space. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to shows about things like what it feels like to fly into a hurricane, the history and current state of racism in our technology, what it was like being the costume designer for Schitt's Creek, and what a perfect fluid sounds like. Visit ctpublic.org slash audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And if working dogs are a part of your life, I really want to hear your thoughts on this one. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org and online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. the night they say I'm going to elevate. They put me on a weird diet and keep pointing at Shree's diagram. Say I'm going higher than anyone has ever been. Distant canine, drifting in space-time Just need a bit of space, I'm not used to this pressure Surely there's somebody better qualified But I guess the sooner I go, sooner I can come home Going to the stars tonight Stars tonight I don't know